to be this morning. By the way, that was a callback to last week. Those of you who were here for outdoor worship remember that my youngest, as I was coming up to preach, said, preach it, Dad, to which I replied, you got it, son. So, Mark chapter 13. I appreciate the encouragement. So, <clears throat> We spent the, the first part of this year walking through the gospel of Mark. COVID derailed our plans a little bit, my plans at least, but we still made it to the empty tomb on Easter Sunday. Now we're kind of going back, and it's not really part of the Step in Step with Jesus series, not really, but it is. I mean, it's part of Mark's gospel. And so uh, this morning, as we come to Mark chapter 13, we see Jesus addressing the future. He is not facing an uncertain future. He knows exactly what will happen, not only in a few days when he goes to the cross, but he knows what will happen come A.D. 70 with the destruction of Jerusalem. What he is doing is he is providing for his disciples who are facing an uncertain future. Disciples of Christ are not all-knowing. And so what should a disciple do in facing an uncertain future? Hear now the word of the true and living God. Mark 13, beginning in verse 1. And as he, Jesus, came out of the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Look, teacher, what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. And Jesus said to him, Do you see these great buildings? There will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. And as he sat on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter and James and John and Andrew asked him privately, Tell us, when will these things be? And what will be the sign when all these things are to be accomplished? And Jesus began to say to them, See that no one leads you astray. Many will come in my name, saying, I am he. And they will lead many astray. And when you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. This must take place, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places. There will be famines. These are but the beginning of birth pains, but be on your guard, for they will deliver you over to councils, and you will be beaten in synagogues, and you will stand before governors and kings for my name's sake to bear witness before them, and the gospel must first be proclaimed to all nations. And when they bring you to trial and deliver you over, do not be anxious beforehand what you are to say, but say whatever is given you in that hour, for it is not you who speak but the Holy Spirit. And brother will deliver brother over to death, and the father his child, and children will rise against parents and have them put to death. And you will be hated by all for my name's sake, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. But when you see the abomination of desolation standing where it ought not to be, let the reader understand, then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains, let the one who is on the housetop not go down nor enter his house to take out to take anything else. And let the one who is in the field not turn back to take his cloak. And alas, for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days, 
pray that it may not happen in winter, for in those days there will be such tribulation as has not been from the beginning of the creation that God created until now and never will be. And if the Lord had not cut short the days, no human being would be saved, but for the sake of the elect whom he chose, he shortened the days. And then if anyone says to you, look, here is the Christ, or look, there he is, do not believe it. For the false Christ and false prophets will arise and perform signs and wonders to lead astray, if possible, the elect. But be on guard, I have told you all things beforehand. But in those days, after that tribulation, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. The stars will be falling from heaven and the powers in the heavens will be shaken. And then they will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. And then he will send out the angels and gather his elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth to the ends of heaven. From the fig tree, learn its lesson. As soon as its branches becomes, uh, as soon as its branch becomes tender and puts out its leaves, you know that summer is near. So also, when you see these things taking place, you know that he is near at the very gates. Truly, I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. But concerning that day or that hour, no one knows. Not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. Be on guard, keep awake, for you do not know when the time will come. It's like a man going on a journey. And he leaves home and puts his servants in charge, each with his work, and commands the doorkeeper to stay awake. Therefore, stay awake. For you do not know when the master of the house will come, in the evening, or at midnight, or when the rooster crows, or in the moon morning, lest he come suddenly and find you asleep. And what I say to you, I say to all, Stay awake. Let us pray. Father, there are certain things in your word which can be difficult to understand. Prophetic literature is one of those things. But as we come to the words of Christ and see this prophecy that he prophesies, we pray that you would give us clear vision to see what it is he is addressing and what it means for us even today. We pray through Christ our Lord. Amen. As I mentioned, the disciples were facing an uncertain future. I think many today, similarly, have a a general fear about the future. They are anxious. Many people are. They are worried about the future. Maybe they're worried about their job. What's going to happen to it? Uh, Am I going to lose my job? Will I have one? People may be concerned, students especially, may be concerned about school. Am I going to make the grade? Uh, Am I going to be able to move on to the next grade? Am I going to graduate? People may be concerned about uh, their families, about the future of their kids, or, or what happens if my spouse were to come down or contract this particular disease or what have you. People may be concerned about the country. I don't like the, the way, I don't like the direction this country's going, and man, what, what's going to happen to America? People may even be fearful about their church. What's going to happen? What's going to become of us as a congregation? Many people are fearful of the future, have a general anxiety about the future. The disciples were similar to us. Their fears were a little different. They were 
focused on one particular thing. They were focused on the temple, focused on Jerusalem. What would become of the temple? Jesus gives this enigmatic statement in verse 2, not one stone left upon another. And the question that the disciples, Peter, Andrew, James, John, ask is, when is this going to happen? What will be the sign that all this will be accomplished? They're fearful about the temple, about Jerusalem. It is as if Jesus is saying, there's going to come a point where your whole world is going to come undone. That's, that's what it would have felt like. Remember, Jesus hasn't gone to the cross yet in Mark's gospel. The empty tomb hasn't happened yet. There hasn't been this shift. Pentecost hasn't happened. And, and so they are still very much invested in the sacrificial system and the temple in Jerusalem. And now here's Jesus saying, yeah, that world's coming to an end. What do we do? How can a disciple face an uncertain future such as this? What will become of us? What will happen? I believe Jesus here provides us with what is necessary in order to face the future with confidence. A confidence that doesn't come from ourselves, but comes even from the Holy Spirit who lives within us. Mark 13, it's a much contested chapter along with the parallel passages over in Matthew and Luke's gospel. And there are a lot of ideas about what Jesus is talking about here. One of the things that's vital for, by, by the way, this is true for any Bible study that you're doing when you're reading God's word. One of the key things is context. What do we mean by context? Well, we mean the uh, surrounding words and phrases and sentences and paragraphs, the surrounding verses of a particular word or phrase or verse. Let me give you an example here, and I think it's one that will ring true for us today. Jesus, there in verse 7, mentions wars and rumors of wars. Ah, there you see, uh, he's talking about Russia, Ukraine, right? Uh, Jesus obviously had what Putin's doing over in the Ukraine in mind, wars and rumors of wars. But wait a minute, what's the context of this? What are the surrounding words and phrases and verses that, that are linked to that phrase, wars and rumors of wars? Well, just stay there in verse 7. And when you hear wars and rumors, who's the you there? Oh, well, obviously, he means us today, right? 2,000 years later? No. No. He, back up to verse 5. When Jesus started talking, he began to say to them. Them who? Back up to verse 3. And as he sat on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter and James and John and Andrew asked him privately. He's talking to these four disciples who are right there in front of him. He's talking to them. When you, Peter, Andrew, James, and John, hear of wars and rumors of wars, the context dictates the interpretation. And when you disconnect a phrase or, or a whole uh, section of verses from its given context, you start running into all kinds of interpretations and uh, issues. No, Jesus is not talking about Russia, Ukraine today. He's talking about what was going to happen in 40 years, roughly. 40 years future time. 
from when he spoke this to A.D. 70. He is talking about the destruction of Jerusalem when the Roman armies, led by Vespasian, Titus, when they uh, came in and marched on Jerusalem. It took them a while. There was a siege on the city of Jerusalem. It took them a little while, but eventually the city fell. They came in and uh, they set fire to the city, set fire to the temple. And because there, were, there was so much uh, gold and the flames got so hot, the gold had actually melted into the foundations and the, the, the uh, Roman soldiers were tearing up the stone foundation in order to get at the gold. That was They did not leave one stone upon another. Prophecy fulfilled. We talked about this in Bible class this morning. Is there any promise, any prophecy of God that, uh, that has failed? When you go throughout redemptive history, no, there is not a single promise that God has made that has failed. Not a single prophecy has failed. And by the way, that's instructive for us because Jesus said, I'm coming back one day. Now, notice verse 6. Jesus says, many will come in my name saying, literally it says, I am. Egoi me in the original, I am. Oh, that's a bold statement for someone to make. They will lead many astray, Jesus says. But, but you come to verse uh, 23, and you notice that Jesus says there, uh, but as for you, again, his disciples, behold, I have told you everything in advance. Jesus has made prophecy. He's spoken prophecy to his disciples. I have told you everything in advance. And what we see historically is this gets worked out in A.D. 70. Now, you do have to deal with uh, verses 24, 25. What about all that sun being darkened and the moon refusing to shine and the stars falling from heaven and all that? Briefly, Jesus is heir to a rich prophetic heritage that we have in our Old Testament scriptures, the Hebrew scriptures. Jesus is heir of that. And he, utilizing language that Isaiah utilizes, that Ezekiel uses, that Joel uses, he plugs this in to, to, to in a highly figurative prophetic language, talk about, essentially, the end of their world. And, and so whenever you come across this, this kind of language, the sun refuses to shine, the moon doesn't give its light, the stars fall, fall from heaven, or... or uh, statements that are similar to that in prophetic literature, you are to understand, oh, this is highly figurative language to describe the end of somebody's world. And sometimes it's applied to the Babylonians, and sometimes it's applied to the Assyrians, and sometimes it's applied to Israel and Judah. But it's, 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 it's using uh, cataclysmic, catastrophic language in order to communicate the world's coming undone. Your world is coming to an end. And so that's how Jesus is using it here to describe the Jewish world as they knew it was coming to an end with the destruction of Jerusalem and the destruction of the temple in particular. How can he do that? And by the way, contrast this with these other con men over in verse 6 who are coming on the scene saying, I'm, I am. 
What's the difference? Keep your finger there in Mark 13. Let me just build this principle briefly. Go to John 13. John chapter 13. John, in his gospel, chapters 13, 14, 15, 16, these are Jesus's, it's his last lecture to his disciples. John, through the Holy Spirit, has recorded it for us. And, and we have the final words Jesus says to his disciples the night that he is betrayed, the night before he goes to the cross, okay? And, and it's a very intimate setting, and he, he has many things to share, and he tells them, look, I, there's so much stuff. I, you can't bear it right now. I'm going to go away, but I'll send the Holy Spirit, and he's going to help you, okay? That, that's the context, right? But notice verse 13, or excuse me, verse 19 of chapter 13 in John's Gospel. I am telling you this now before it takes place. In other words, in advance, yes? Beforehand. That when it takes place, and it will take place, you may believe that I am he. Literally, he says, that you may believe that I am. Now, what typically happens, and if you have a study Bible or if you have a, a center column that has cross-references, chances are they're going to give you a reference that takes you all the way back to Exodus chapter 3, at where, where uh, Moses is having conversation with Yahweh, and Moses says, who shall I say sent me? And Yahweh says, tell them I am sent you. I am the I am. Okay, and That's okay. That's, that's a decent connection there. However, that this whole phrase here, that you may believe that I am, that actually has a different uh, connection in our Old Testament scriptures. In Isaiah 43 and verse 10, this is a good text to memorize. If you are talking with uh, your Jehovah's Witness friends, because this is the text that they're going to come to, uh, if it's also useful when you're having conversations with uh, the folks that come and knock on your door in the white shirts and the black ties, your your Mormon friends, right? Uh, because this is a, a text that they'll come that that you need when you're in conversation with them, because it concludes, "Before me no god was formed, nor shall there be any after me," and that pretty well dismisses the god of Mormonism. But what I want here, notice verse 10, Isaiah 43, verse 10. You are my witnesses, declares Yahweh, or the old translation Jehovah, Jehovah's Witnesses. That Again, that's where they get their name right here. And my servant whom I have chosen that, notice, that you may know and believe me and understand that I am. Now. I'm persuaded this is what Jesus is referencing here because when the Hebrew scriptures were translated into Greek, we call that the Septuagint, the, the, uh, the verb that is used here for believe, is it's the exact same here as it is when Jesus says it. I believe Jesus is intentionally making a connection to what was the Bible for the first century Jewish folks and for the church, by the way, in the first century, which was the Septuagint in order to connect and say, listen, I want you to believe that I am in the same way Israel was supposed to believe that Yahweh is the I am. Jesus is equating himself 
with Yahweh. Indeed, he is Yahweh come in the flesh. This is, this is very rich for our understanding of Jesus and who he is. Why, as we come back to Mark chapter 13, he can declare everything in advance. It is because he is the I am. What's a disciple to do? What is a disciple to do? By the way, I'm just getting to my notes. That was all introduction. Anyway. (coughs) (laughs) Three things that I see Jesus telling his disciples, and it's related to what we've already seen here in verses 5 and 6. Jesus began to say to them, See that no one leads you astray. Many will come in my name saying, I am, I am he, and they will lead many astray. And then connect this with verses 21 through 23. And then if anyone says to you, look, here is the Christ, or look, there he is, do not believe it, for false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform signs and wonders to lead astray, if possible, the elect. But be on guard, I have told you all things beforehand. When the world comes to an end, When the Jewish world stands condemned, even, the disciples are to walk assured that they are following the true Messiah. It can be very tempting, and and, and we know for many Jewish Christians in the first century, it was very tempting to go back, to go back to the temple and all that. You need to, and that's what the Book of Hebrews is about. You need to walk assured we have the better, greater thing. But here, the disciples, the apostles, the the early uh, Christians, they're going to hear about these other guys that are going to come on the scene, and they're going to be claiming to be Messiah, to even be claiming, I am. And they're going to be false Christ. They're going to be false prophets. They will entice many followers. You even see this fulfilled as you come to uh, the book of Acts, to a degree at least. In Acts chapter 5, verses 36 and 37, you have a prophecy named Gamaliel. And, and he, the, 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 the Jewish authorities are trying to figure out, what are we supposed to do with this new uh, sect, the, these, these new uh, people who followed the way, these disciples of Christ? And it's Gamaliel who stands up, and he says in verse 35, men of Israel... Take care what you're about to do with these men. For before the da- these days, uh, Thutis rose up claiming to be somebody, and a number of men, about 400, joined him. He was killed, and all who followed him were dispersed and came to nothing. And after him, Judas the Galilean rose up in the days of the census and drew away some of the people after him. He too perished, and all who followed him were scattered. You did have these false Christs cropping up. And so Jesus is saying, yeah, that's going to keep happening. There will continue to be these false Christs. And what will happen is people will follow after them and make shipwreck of their faith. They will be deceived. They will be led astray. But Jesus is warning them, you've got to watch out for these these guys, all right? They're slick and they're suave and they'll have their their, uh, catered message. But you've got to watch out for them. Because they're not me. 
They are not the I am's. They're, they end up being just has-beens, okay? Jesus was telling them, yes, he, he's going to come back. And, and there's a principle undergirding this for the final coming. But you walk assured that you are following the true Messiah. These, these other false Christs, they don't ride the clouds like I do. Right? That's verse, uh, that's verse 26. The Son of Man coming in the clouds with great power and glory. Uh, for all these other so-called Christs and false prophets, uh, where's your power? Where's your glory? Non-existent? Nice try. No, Jesus, and by the way, even that phrase, coming with, uh, coming in the clouds, that, that, you tie that back to, to the Old Testament scriptures in Isaiah, uh, Ezekiel talks about this as well, and, and the chariot, that was the war wagon of Yahweh. When he came in judgment on nations in time and space and history, he came on his war wagon, the clouds, and that's, again, highly figurative prophetic language, it's judgment language. Now, walk assured that you're following the true Messiah. The more things change, the more they stay the same. From time to time, there are these guys who crop up in different places, and they claim to be Christ. Uh, one that you may recognize uh, is David Koresh and his Branch Davidians. David Koresh claimed to be, quote, the Son of God, the Lamb who could open the seven seals of Revelation. He led many astray, and they died a tragic death out in Waco, Texas, for their misplaced faith in a false Christ. Many will come, and many continue to come, and this is why we need to be so familiar with the truth of the identity of Christ that when error raises its ugly head, we can spot it immediately. We can recognize the counterfeit for what it is because we so know and love the true Christ. We keep our eyes on Jesus. And when we hear these claims of so-called Christ, we can identify them for being the false claims that they are. The reality is, is that unfortunately there are many who claim to be disciples who, when they hear the claims of somebody claiming to be somebody, they unfortunately don't know the shepherd's voice. And they're led astray. Let it not be so with us, brothers and sisters. Let us be so familiar with the shepherd of the, the, the voice of our shepherd that when the hireling comes, we recognize it for what it is. And we follow the true voice of our true shepherd. One other thing, it doesn't just have to be false Christ and false prophets. I think many uh, disciples can create idols in their hearts. It can be a false god. Back then, their idols may have looked like birds and bears and beasts. Ours maybe go vroom, vroom today. Or they, they can be our house. They can be our bank accounts. They can be even our children. But no idol can truly become, can, we cannot allow any idol to become Lord in our life. There is only one Lord that we confess, and that is the Lord Jesus Christ. Another thing Jesus says here, 
And it's in verses 9 through 13. Jesus tells his disciples, you, when facing an uncertain future, you need to be prepared and willing to pay the price. There is a price to be paid when following Jesus. Uh, he tells them they will, not eh, it might happen, they will deliver you over to councils. You'll be beaten in synagogues. Stand before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness. The gospel needs to go to all the nations first. And when they bring you to trial and deliver you over, do not be anxious beforehand what you are to say, but say whatever is given to you in that hour, for it is not you who speaks, but the Holy Spirit. Let us deliver brother over to death. Father is child. Children will rise against parents, have them put to death. You will be hated by all for my name's sake. The one who endures to the end will be saved. Jesus is, again, he's calling his disciples to complete faith, complete trust in him. And there is a price to be paid. It may cost you your family. It may cost you uh, uh, reputation among the world. You will be hated, he says. Are you willing to pay the price? Are you prepared to pay the price? Are you willing? You need to walk in a way that is prepared, in a way that is willing to be hated by all for the sake of Christ. There is a code of discipleship that Jesus has established. You read about it in the pages of the Gospels. What it means to follow Jesus. What it means to be his disciple. And the standard is very high. And yet we, with the help of the Holy Spirit, are enabled to meet the standard if, again, we are willing. You see, the one who endures to the end will be saved. There's a, a promise here of salvation for the one who is prepared and the one who is willing to walk with Christ, to follow him in all things. I, I do just want to mention one more thing here. Um, Members have come in the past. Christians have come to me, and uh, they have asked about, you know, what? why is it that, that when I get into conversation with folks, or, or, or rather I should say, why is it that I avoid conversation with folks when it comes to sharing the gospel? Uh, I'm, I'm fearful or I'm timid or what have you. Part of it may be that we don't recognize that the promise of the presence of the Spirit of God is couched in the context of risk, especially these conversations that bring risk with them. Conversations like sharing the gospel with others, sharing the most important good news that has ever been given and entrusted to jars of clay. You see, Jesus says here, look, you don't have to worry when you get in, in front of people because it is not you who will speak, but, and it's, 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 uh, it's the strongest contrast that, pe that can be spoken in the, this in the original language, but it's the Holy Spirit. You see, we have help from the helper. Now, granted, it is not the uh, inspiration like what we have in Scripture. That was different, and, and uh, all of the revelation of God has been delivered, and it is God-breathed. However, it is help in the context of risk that when you are confronted with 
these religious opponents, when you are confronted by those who even hate you, you will be uh, given help, you will be provided for, and, uh, and you will bear witness in a way that is God-glorifying. Of course, that brings with it other questions like, well, I've been there. I've been in conversation with folks, and, and I, I didn't have the words. And that happens too. And it may be that in that moment, there is something that the Lord is trying to teach you. Like, uh, are you going to depend upon me? Are you really going to depend upon me in all things? And maybe he's trying to teach us humility. Well, it's true. I, I am not omniscient. I may know a lot, but I don't know everything. And that's okay because I'm a creature. I'm not supposed to know everything. We are to be prepared and willing to pay the price. I connect this with what the Apostle Paul says over in Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 1. He says, notice, I therefore a prisoner for the Lord. This is the Apostle Paul, and he was prepared and he was willing to pay the price. And it, it led him to a Roman prison cell. But notice what he says. I therefore a prisoner for the Lord urge you. To walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. In other words, live according to the code of discipleship that you know from the Lord. And there is a manner that is worthy of that calling, which also means there's a way that's unworthy. And a Christian is to avoid that unworthy walk. We are to walk in a manner which is worthy of the Lord. And what happens is, this is what uh, John the Baptist says in the Gospel of John. He says, I must decrease, he must increase. And that is what it's like for us. Where our will becomes virtually non-existent so that his will is done. Our faithfulness is unlimited in connection with his will. I will be faithful in all things because ultimately I'm willing to pay the price. And then one more thing, and then the lesson will be ours. Verse 13, the one who endures to the end will be saved. Jesus is teaching his disciples that even when facing an uncertain future, a future which may even end in your death, and for the lion's share of the disciples, it did. All of them died martyrs' deaths. We understand from tradition, except for John. John, uh, as far as we can tell, tradition tells us he died of old age, an old man in Ephesus. But all the rest died a martyr's death. But that's because they understood a disciple's walk is a lifelong commitment. It is not a thing that just belongs to yesterday, and it's not a thing that just belongs to today, and it's not a thing that just belongs to tomorrow. And yeah, that's what I did yesterday. I'm not going to do it anymore. Or, uh, you know, I'll do it some other time. Jesus is teaching that this is a forever thing. It is a faithfulness that is forever. That we are to endure to the end. And it terminates in our salvation at the end of time. Jesus is not interested in fair weather discipleship. He is inter interested in forever faithfulness. Jesus is not interested in, in disciples who 
pick and choose where they're going to be faithful. I'll be faithful in this, but not in this. I'll be faithful, you know, again, I'll do that tomorrow. I can't, I'm not going to do it today. I, I want to live for me today, and I'll live for Christ tomorrow. Jesus, again, he's interested in forever discipleship. That you will be my disciple until the end. Jesus is also not interested in island discipleship. Uh, sometimes I talk about uh, how sometimes we get into our ideas that it's just me and Jesus. Or, or we, we get this idea that I'm just going to go off and be a spiritual Chuck Norris or a spiritual Rambo and a one-man army, right? In the fight against evil. Jesus understands this is something you do in community. You do with fellow disciples that you are to find encouragement from your brothers and your sisters in Christ. And that, in fact, that is how you can endure to the end, is because you are mutually encouraging one another. And all the more, spurring us on toward love and good deeds, and all the more as you see the day approaching. And again, these first century disciples, they, they paid that price. And we need to learn the lesson well and mark it down where we keep sacred truth. That being a disciple is a lifelong commitment to faithfulness to Christ. That being a disciple is, it, it, it's not only for those for situations, right? It is, don't get me wrong. In the moment, you, you need to be faithful to Christ in that situation. But it's also perpetual. It goes from one situation to the next to the next where you seek to live consistently a life of faithfulness and and over time all of those successes are good but in each of those successes you are also learning to grow and to deepen your faith to deepen your trust and you can look back on your life and you can see the abundance of these successes and know all along the way that really it wasn't you it was God in you was Christ in you who helped you all along the way. That's why, uh, yeah. You know that <laughs> that poster? Uh, and it's got, uh, it's got a, a scene of a, of a beach, and there's a single set of footprints, right? And then it's got the poem that goes with it, and it's, you know, and sometimes during, uh, and th- the scene is, you know, there's this person, they're looking back on their life, and they, they look, it's as if their life are, are these footprints in the sands of time, and uh, sometimes there were two sets because they were walking next to Jesus, and then sometimes there was only one foot of foot, set of footprints. And, and they looked back and they said, Jesus, why did you abandon me? Why were there only one set of footprints? And he says, child, I didn't abandon you. It was those times that I carried you. And so those were Jesus' footprints. You know this, right? There's the footprints thing. I have issues with it because Jesus always carries us. If we think, if we if we think that we can we can do this where we can we can walk ourselves, we're setting ourselves up for failure. And that's what can happen also when it comes to discipleship is is that uh, a lot of the times that there there becomes an abundance of failures because we're trying to live this thing out on our own, and we need to recognize Jesus. He needs he needs to carry me the whole way. Because I start trying to walk this thing, and I'm just, you know, I'm, I'm falling down. What can happen is those, again, those, those failures uh, just, just build up, and, and, and I think some folks get to a point where it's like, what's the use? We need to allow Christ to carry us, carry us in a, a faith that grows and matures every day. 
is the faith that Jesus is talking about here. The one who endures to the end will be saved. There is so much more here in that short sermon. But I do believe this is sufficient. Jesus providing us the means to face an uncertain future. Because again, we're creatures. We don't know what's going to come. We don't know what will happen. But Jesus, his call is good for us today as it was good for his disciples then. Will you have that forever faith? Will you follow me in all things? Will you allow me to carry you so that you can endure to the end? You can stand firm to the end no matter what happens. Let's, uh, let's go back to where we began. We talked about all those scenarios. Suppose, suppose your job. They, they terminate your position tomorrow. Suppose, uh, suppose a family member got that diagnosis. Suppose that uh, our country came to an end overnight. However that might happen. Suppose even maybe concerning our church, our worst fears came to fruition. What would you do? How would these scenarios affect your faith in Jesus? Only you can answer this in your own heart of hearts. But we see the call of our Lord. Put your faith, your trust in me as the only Savior and repeat after me. Thy will be done. Let us pray. Lord God, if there, hmm, Lord God, there are those who are here. And I know that their heart is burdened with fear. I know that there are those who are watching online and they sense the same burden. Lord God, ameliorate and take away our fear. Help us to see that we do have a spirit of boldness, of power. Holy Spirit who lives within us and by your spirit within us enable us to follow you to follow Christ in all things that we would be zealous for love and good deeds and all the more as we look to and hasten the day when our Lord returns we pray this through Christ our Lord Verse 10 says, the gospel must first be proclaimed 